Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the Shalom world. Shalom and welcome to another episode of Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. I'm so honored and excited to have with us today, Hannah Channon, who grew up here in Memphis. She attended Gramwood, White Station Middle, the Jewish High School, Zichronoli Vracha, and finished up at Ridgeway before going to Tulane and attending WashU in St. Louis for law school. In between, she spent time in Israel, first on a Massah program and then working and living there for another year or so. And that, uh, she'll, she'll talk about her Israel experience. And we're so lucky to have her not just today, but living back in Memphis as a healthcare attorney. So, Hannah, thank you so much, and welcome to Torah to the People. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's get started with what your Jewish life was like growing up. Um, I know you grew up partly at Temple, partly at other places. And what was your family connection, family perspective on Israel? Because it's such a big part of your life now. What was it like as a kid? Sure. So I think we grew up similar to a lot of Memphis families where, you know, you get a little bit from this congregation, a little bit from that congregation. Um, When I was, I went to Schechter for a few years as well in my early education. So we had a lot of ties with Beth Shalom, the local conservative synagogue. Um, We had friends at Chabad. So we went to Chabad as well. Um, It was really just being part of the community was pretty central to my Jewish upbringing. Um, Interestingly, not a super Zionist household that I grew up in, not because they didn't support Israel or Zionism, but more just a real focus on the local Jewish community and engaging um, here in Memphis. So didn't have much of that Israel background outside of what we were learning in school. And, you know, we have some great educational institutions in Memphis or the scouts in summer camp and things like that, um, but didn't have much exposure. Um, I tried to go to Israel for my bat mitzvah actually around 2005, but due to some political, geopolitical things going on in Israel at the time, my parents thought, you know, maybe we'll stay in Memphis and go to Israel later. Um, Unfortunately, that didn't come to fruition for me until I went on birthright right after college was my first time in Israel, so 2015, 2016. And what what was that like, your first time in Israel? What, What did you discover? What surprised you? What excited you? So I really had no preconceived notions. I mean, I'd watched a lot of Fauda and some other Israeli (laughs) TV shows, but beyond that, like, I really, I was not a big political buff. Like, I wasn't really watching things that closely like I am these days. So I just went with a really open mind. Um, The biggest surprise, and maybe this shows a bit of my ignorance, in Memphis, we're a primarily Ashkenazi community, and Jews of color, they're just aren't as many in our community here. And when I got to Israel, you know, I'd heard things in the past about it being 
colonialist or any of these words that maybe you're hearing in the media right now. And then I got there myself and was like, oh, this is one of the most diverse places I've ever been, not just among the Jewish population being so diverse, but Eritrean, Ethiopian. I mean, you have these, it's a refuge for so many different types of people within Judaism and outside of Judaism. And that was probably the biggest surprise to me. Mm. So for our listeners who aren't aware of the statistics, more than half, more than 50% of um, Israeli Jews are not Ashkenazic, are Mizrahi or Ethiopian or Eritrean, um, or Jews from other places around the world, uh, which is is not necessarily the, n- the narrative that we hear, but also um, is relatively recent. It was just in the last few years that it, uh, the non-Ashkenazi Jews went over 50%, but also from the history of Israel, you know, founded primarily by Ashkenazi Jews from from Germany, from Eastern and Central Europe, and uh, the the history of the experience of Mizrahi Jews in Israel is is a um, tumultuous one is is not a, not a simple one, um, and and most non Ashkenazi Jews will say Mizrahi, meaning from the East, uh, largely interchangeable with Sephardic, but not not entirely. Um, they came in in droves, about 600,000 of them, uh, in the early 1950s, when soon after the establishment of the state of Israel, they were essentially ethnically cleansed from countries where they where their communities had, had existed for hundreds of years, from Yemen, from Iraq, from um, Morocco, places all over. And um, they had a tough time. They had a tough time. There's discrimination. And um, it's been, maybe we'll touch on that more a little bit later, but um, those dynamics from from their immigration to the state of Israel um, still play out in Israeli politics today. Yeah, that sounds accurate. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I... um, when I lived in Israel, I was dating a gentleman from a Moroccan family, so I got a little bit more of the insight about his family's lineage and why they came. Um, I also, one of my really good friends, um, her dad actually came from Iraq, like mm. in a later wave. Um, and this, these were all sort of experiences that if I had stayed in my own community, I wouldn't have been exposed to this diversity. And there is a bit of struggle, you know, socially and politically, but it just wasn't something I was aware of at all before I went to Israel. Hmm. And the best part about it, about the struggle and the melting pot, of course, is the food. Yeah. Uh, because when you're, you grow up Jewish in Memphis, you think about Jewish food as brisket and chicken and kugel and matzo ball soup. And there... Marat Kube, oh my gosh! Yes. If you if you struggle to believe in God, try Marat Kube, and you will have faith. Specifically, the Kube Hamusta, the sour oh, so one. Good. I like that better than the Kube Selik, which is like the red beet one. But my Iraqi friend actually was the one who introduced me to Kube. She took me to Azora in Jerusalem. Oh. It's right, yeah, it's right at Machne Yehuda, and it's so delicious. And I was like, oh, there's a whole world of Judaism for me. Food is often the the connection uh, to other other cultures and through the food i was like there's so much of judaism i don't even know about like so much richness that i was able to first get in touch with in israel so along those lines your first trip of is in israel you were 22 it's 10 days it's a whirlwind 
Um, were, did you fall in love with Israel then, or was it not until you kind of made the decision after college and really lived there full time that you really formed this deep connection? So interestingly, I ended up going on the birthright trip because I had signed up for the internship, and they told me, once you do this, you're no longer eligible for birthright. Smart. And so I was like, okay, I need to get my trip, my free trip into Israel first, my birthright trip. And then, so I think I was there for 10 days. I was home for 10 days, and then I flew back for my internship two weeks later. Wow. So it really was almost like one one continuous experience. Yes. I Honestly, it was just a way to capitalize on like having more time in Israel. Um, and then it turned out one of the leaders on my trip, as always happens in Israel, she was an American from New York, and she was one of the madrichim on birthright, and her friend from when she was on birthright ended up being my manager at my internship. Whoa. So, you know, small world type, type of thing, so. Yeah. No surprise, small No Jewish surprise, world. no surprise at all. So tell, I want to hear a little bit about what life was like as an American living in Israel, um, because I think most of our, most people listening, if, if you've been to Israel, you've probably been on a trip, whether, whether it was birthright or whether it was a congregational trip, that's a, a tour of the country. But you might not have experience um, or really even know that many people who spent significant time there. So what was that like as an American living there? I think Israel is really unique in that it is, you know, we talk about America being a melting pot and a country of migrants, and it is, but it's on an even bigger scale in Israel. Um, you have Olim coming from, or, or new immigrants coming from America and Europe and South America and North America all the time. So there is an openness. It's, it's not a closed society. You feel that you know, people are interested in why did you come here and, and how are things going? And I was, I would like be on the bus talking, you know, you're not supposed to talk on your phone on the bus, but I'd maybe have a quick conversation with my mom on the way home from work and somebody would hear me speaking English and say, oh, you know, like I'm American. Do you want to come for Shabbat? Like meet some of my friends and just a very welcoming place. But at the same time, it is difficult. Like Israel is not the easiest place to live. It's not, you know, I didn't have a car when I was there because it's just incredibly expensive. Um, there aren't a lot of the conveniences that we're used to. Like, oh, I can go to Target and pick up my prescription and get my trash bags and maybe some groceries too. It's all very like... There's no two-day prime shipping. No, there's... I mean, the mail in and of itself is a whole thing. Like, going to the bank is a cultural experience. Um so there were a lot of really challenging parts, but I found um, people focus a lot, it seems to me, on like the social bonds and spending time together. So while like the material part may be a little bit more difficult, like salaries are difficult there and the cost of living is generally very high in places like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, you know, everyone meets on Friday afternoon is sit on the beach for a few hours and that's like a very normal date spot. And I would sometimes come home from work at one or two in the morning and I lived uh, near or in Jaffa and there would be whole families out on the beach at like midnight, hanging out, smoking hookah, playing games. Like there's just a focus on what we have, enjoying what we have now and enjoying each other. Mm. I love that. I, um, two, two, two pieces I want to add to that, which is number one, um, it seems in a way that you felt like home 
when you were there. Um, that, you know, that person uh, called you out on the bus and said, come over for Shabbos, that there's a sense of togetherness that um, we certainly don't have in America. I mean, if you're, if you're blessed with a close family or close group of friends, you might have that in your personal life, but it's not part of society. Um, and I was struck, I remember my first time in Israel when I was there with BBYO in high school, when I got in a cab and saw a taxi driver wearing a yarmulke, or we were in our hotel and I saw every hotel room um, with a mezuzah on the door. It just finally, for the first time, I felt like, wow, like being Jewish is just part of the water we are swimming in. And, and I, I never realized that I had missed that in America until I got to Israel. And so I, for me, that I really resonate with that feeling of, of home. Uh, but also, as a second point to what you said about the, the sense of togetherness and community, um, Dan Senor and Saul Singer, who wrote Startup Nation, just came out with a new book in November uh, called The Genius of Israel, which is really about not, not Israeli business and the startup culture, but about Israeli culture itself and why, even though Israel is, um, has a lot of struggles, as you talked about, and of course, uh, they have violence and they have war, how it's the top, in the top five most happiest countries in the world year after year after year. And one of the main things that he talks about is the sense of community and the sense of togetherness. And even though 60-ish percent of Israel considers themselves secular and not religious, over 85% of Israeli families have Shabbat dinner together every, every week. And there's something really powerful about that and really special about that. I totally resonate with the what you were talking about, about being, it's in the water, right? It's built into the culture. Oh, you know, maybe, yeah, we're secular, so we'll go out to a club on Friday night. But obviously, I'm going to be busy from 5 to 8.30 because I have Shabbat dinner, and that's just what everyone does. Um, for me, a big moment when I was there during Yom Kippur, and for those who don't know, in Israel on Yom Kippur, no one drives. Like, you can have a picnic on the highway if that's what you want to do. I mean, every roadway is completely empty. Um, and when I'm in the U.S., I kind of feel like, oh, I need to be at temple or synagogue and I need to do these things. And that year for Yom Kippur in Israel, I just went and like sat on the beach and meditated for a few hours and watched the waves and kind of just absorbed the vibes of a country that had completely paused for this holiday where in the U.S. I have to, you know, tell my work, okay, we have this Jewish holiday, so I'm not going to be available and all that. And in Israel, it was just, it's the culture. You can just be, it's a lot of times for me, Judaism outside of Israel can feel like doing, like it's things I need to do or perform in a certain way. And in Israel, I feel like my Judaism is just being, like I am just in this place, in this Jewish community, in this Jewish culture. And you can be Jewish in any way that works for you and still feel really, really connected to, you know, our peoplehood and our history. Mm. Before we switch gears and talk about October 7th and, and its aftermath, what is one thing you wish American Jews knew about Israel that we don't? I think it's really important to remember that Israel is not a monolith. 
um, I know the non-Jewish world often thinks of Israel as a monolith or, you know, everybody agrees with the government or everyone's religious or everyone's this. But as Jews even sometimes, you know, I'm like, I do it myself. I think of Jerusalem and say, oh, it's not really a fun place because it's like religious and there's just not as much fun stuff to do. There is variety, opinions in how people live their lives in every city, in every place in Israel. Your vibe is there, I guess, is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. You know, I for a long time I was like, tattoos are the worst thing a Jew can do. That was sort of like, you know, what had been drilled into me by my parents and never do it, never do it. And I get to Israel and they're all the, I mean, in Tel Aviv, it's probably like one of the most tattooed cities in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And none of these people would characterize themselves as a bad Jew. They are connected to their Judaism and that's how they express themselves. So just sort of understanding that there's like, such a wider array of identifying and practicing and living. And I think we can learn a lot from Israel about that, um, that people still can closely identify with their Judaism. They don't have to be disenfranchised or disaffiliated and express themselves in a way that feels authentic. Hmm. That's such a great point. From a Jewish perspective, like... uh in terms of observance, in terms of of ideology, there's such a range. I mean, of course, you have ultra orthodox enclaves like Bnei Brak um, or Mea Sharim, but then you have one of the biggest pride marches in the world in Tel Aviv, and there's no place in the Middle East and even places in Europe that are as gay friendly as Tel Aviv. So, from a Jewish perspective, a hundred percent, but also from a just a cultural perspective, um, of course, you have a Jewish beach in Tel Aviv and you know all, all throughout the west coast of the country. Um, you have amazing hiking. You have the Sea of Galilee, one of the prettiest places in the world. Uh, you have snorkeling and scuba diving in Eilat. Uh, Israeli music and Israeli literature and poetry. It's like uh, a, a renaissance of Jewish life and culture and whatever way you want to connect to it, whether it's in the outdoors and, and many people go hiking on Shabbat. Mm-hmm. And that, they say the way that they observe Shabbat is by going out and enjoying the land and connecting to the land of Israel. And then you have a whole uh, group of, of Israelis who are farming. And I mean, how many Jewish farmers, Eli Steinberg you know, is, is a close friend, and, and, we, and Jacob Levy and his family are Jewish farmers here in Memphis, but there's not a ton of Jewish farmers in America. And yet in Israel, out of this recognition that Israel needs to be able to sustain itself and, and the Jews should be connected, not just connected to books, but connected to land, farming is a huge part of Israeli culture. And so I'd love to, to switch gears for a second, or actually for the rest of the conversation, talk as a segue using, ooh, I'll try that sentence again, um, using agriculture and farming as a segue to talk about your experience volunteering um, in Israel, and you you volunteered on a grapefruit farm. So talk about that. What was that like, and what led you to want to leave your comfortable life here in America to go work on a farm in Israel? Sure. So on October 7th, I was hanging out with some friends in Colorado. I had woken up really early. We were going to do a half marathon. I saw some weird stuff on social media, but I figured it was the typical, there's a few rockets incoming and some things are going on, but whatever, don't worry about it. 
a few hours later, by the time I'd finished the half marathon, it was clear that this was like something completely different. I was seeing pictures of terrorists in trucks in Israel that going down the street, like things that is really anyone's worst nightmare who is lives in Israel or loves Israel or has people they love in Israel. Um, it was really terrifying. And I'm sure like many people in the US or outside of Israel, we felt very confused, very helpless, very disconnected. What do we do? And that for me persisted for a while. I was just sort of a, I don't know what to do. I'm not in the army, you know? Like I, I kind of tried to do some social media advocacy, but it was hard to feel like I was doing something for the people in the country that I love so much. So I'd seen, again, on social media, some reports um, specifically about the agricultural issues that were ongoing. So for those who don't know, um, about 80% of the agricultural workers in Israel are foreign workers. Um, some are Palestinian, so they have a license to come in and farm. And a lot of them are Thai. Like thousands and thousands of workers come in from Thailand because it's considered quite a well-paid job comparably. Um, many of them are sending families home to support their, fa or sending money to their families to support them. And, you know, um, Hamas didn't really discriminate in who they took as hostages. If there happened to be Thai workers or Nepali workers on those farms or kibbutzim, they were taken hostage too. Um, and I think a lot of foreign workers started to think, is this livelihood worth my safety and security? I mean, it's all very reasonable um, thought patterns, and most of them left the country. So they lost pretty much 80% of the agricultural workforce that was foreign, and then the young, you know, farming Israelis, many of them are men, probably between the ages of 20 and 50, a lot of them went into reserves. So there was a huge just absence of agricultural workers. Um, Israel also, for those who don't know, is you know not in a great neighborhood. Its neighbors don't love it. So they have issues with importing. They do import some produce from Turkey and Jordan, but that's not a super stable supply often. Um, and so internal produ agricultural production is like crucial for the country. Mm. So I started seeing some things about Israelis on the ground going and volunteering in their afternoons. I mean, I think many of us saw that Israelis really just dropped everything. If they weren't in the army, it was like, you know, can I walk my neighbor's dog? Can I cook food for your son who is in the army? I mean, people were willing to do anything. And I saw all of these people going to farm. And I was like, well, maybe I could fly there, get a hotel room, figure out like where they're getting this information on Facebook somehow and go to these farms. Um, and I started Googling and actually found a program through a birthright subsidiary that was starting to take people um, 25 to 40 was the age range. And I said, okay, I'll just, I'm just gonna send an application and see what happens. The trip left in like five days. And then of course, as birthright subsidiaries do, you know, they got me on the phone, we did the interview, they, I got the ticket booked and off I went. Um, I didn't really know what to expect, but I figured just being in Israel would be um, powerful and that whatever help I could provide, like I was there to do it. It's, it's such an inspiring story and, and I really resonate with that feeling of helplessness you talked about. Um, I think many people in our community, I know many people in our community because they've told me, 
in the days since October 7th are feeling um, not only traumatized and uh, pained at, of course, what happened in Israel, at the response on social media or the response by the rest of the world, uh, but there's also this sense of helplessness. Like, my people, uh, my homeland is in, a, in, in peril, and what can I do? And I have to imagine that going there and actually getting your hands dirty and helping, you weren't in Gaza and you weren't uh, on the north on the northern border with Lebanon. You weren't you didn't have a, a gun in your hand, but um, you found a way to help. And and how did that feel? I think we talked about this and remind me at some point where there was like a theory that trauma is lessened by actually being effective. Was this you that I talked yeah, to we, about Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in when you spoke here a few weeks ago, and I, I just want to invite everybody to look on our YouTube channel for our talk with Hannah Channon. Uh, it was a really, she put together a beautiful presentation with videos from um, the people she volunteered for, the people who own the farm, and a lot of other resources. So we'll, we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But uh, if you like this conversation, I encourage you to go watch that. It was a wonderful presentation by you, Hannah. Thank you. But yeah, you're saying about trauma. So I think taking action for me is a really, um, I don't know if protective mechanism is the right word, but it kept me from stewing and ruminating and something about feeling effective really sort of transform the experience. Now that I've been back in the U.S. for a while, it's, it is a little bit more difficult. But when I was in Israel, it was like I felt really connected. I felt, you know, the community and the love of the people. I felt like I was really doing something. And, of course, like financial donations, they go very, very far. And I was doing some of that before I went to Israel as well. But getting the hugs from the people who are like, you're making our harvest possible or because you've been here, this this farm will continue to fruit in generations to come because if we didn't harvest this year, there just wouldn't be fruit in the future. That, in my own small way, made me feel like I am doing something to help my people, like something really, really tangible. And for me, that gives me a lot of like, peace and fulfillment knowing that I'm, I'm doing a little something even as all of the like craziness is going on around us mm. well we'll have a chance I hope at the end of this conversation to talk about what other people can do because not everybody has either the financial capacity or um, your trip was heavily subsidized uh, but not everybody falls in that age range to qualify and not everybody can leave America for a week and go to Israel to volunteer. So I do want to spend a little time at the end, if we have time, what can other people do? Uh, but you helped yourself. You helped your own inner mental health and your own sense of wanting to help Israel. But you also made a really big impact on the people who you actually helped in Israel, um, the, the people who own that farm. So can you talk a little bit about what you did and what kind of impact you made in their lives? Sure. So... I actually just got a text from on Tuesday from one of the farmers we were working with, um, 
and they finished the grapefruit harvest and she sent a picture of grapefruits that spelled out the end. And she was <laughs> like, you know, we can only do this because of you guys. So as a little bit of background, um, we worked at Kfar Hess, which is a Moshav farming community of about 1500 people. Um, most of the people there are involved in farming. Some are like suburban commuters and there are plots of land kind of within the Moshav that do all sorts of different agriculture. So I was working in grapefruits, um, some other people in our group were doing flower harvesting, other folks were doing tomato harvesting. So I mean, there's a huge variety um, and different families sort of work in different areas is my understanding. Mm. Um, the Anat and Iran Vardi were the two farmers that we worked with and they were just the most lovely, lovely people. Um, both of their children are in their late 20s and had to return to the army. Um, they work in intelligence positions, so generally they would work alongside their parents for the grapefruit harvest, but they were needed elsewhere. So um, they had to go back into the military, and then they primarily worked with Palestinians, uh, laborers on the harvest for grapefruits, but now none of them can come into the country. Um, all the licenses have been revoked. So For security. For security purposes, correct. So they thought it was just, they were like, we didn't know what to do. You know, we were, we were going out every day to try to keep moving forward, but it's so overwhelming when you have thousands of acres of grapefruits that need to be picked by hand. And you're just, you know, two people in your 60s who are sort of like close to retirement and expect to have all this help. And then all of a sudden you're alone. Um, so we would go, we got picked up at our hostel in Tel Aviv around 6.30 or 7 every morning. We bust to Kfar Hess, which was about 45 minutes northeast. Um, we would farm till like 1 or 2 in the afternoon, and then we would bust back to Tel Aviv. Um, There's a great picture of you driving a tractor with a, with a Grizzlies hat on. Yes, and, I, uh, they were awesome. I mean, they were like, you, you want to drive it? Sure. You want to like, they would let us do whatever we want. It was great. Um, and yeah, so we just showed up every day and did the thing, did whatever they needed. Um, we ended up while I was there, we did 22,000 pounds of grapefruit. And I don't even think that was like a third of their total farming. Mm -hmm. So... They've been. They originally thought that they were going to be going until Purim, is what she told me. Wow. But I, they're done. But because of all, so yeah. we're recording right now in the middle of February. Mm -hmm. Purim is still a few weeks, uh, about a month away. Mm -hmm. um, so because of all the volunteers, they finish early. It's amazing. Yeah. And and you told me, and I had no idea. I'm not a uh, grapefruit farmer. If you don't pick grapefruits, if you don't harvest them, the tree won't fruit the next year. So they. If, if they didn't have this help, the, the entire future of their business was in jeopardy. Yeah, so I didn't know that either. I thought, oh, they need us to come pick because like they need, the people need to be able to buy grapefruits and they need to be able to make money off of this harvest. I didn't realize it, like the long ranging potential consequences. Um, it While it was great for them to have the little extra boost from this year's harvest, they said if we weren't going to be able to get help, we were just going to knock all the grapefruits off and just leave them mm. because we just need the fruit off the tree or else these will not continue to fruit for following generations. Wow. Um, and I believe those groves have been there. Some of them are different ages, but I mean, there are some that are more than like 50 or 60 years old. Wow. Yeah. So you said you, you would farm until about two and then you did a lot more than just farm when you were there. 
Can you talk about, I know you spent some time with soldiers. I know you spent time in Hostage Square and also at the, the expo that, re, that memorialized those who lost, lost their lives at the Nova Film Festival. So I'd love to talk about all three of those, your time with soldiers first, and then we'll go from there. So I was really impressed by like the group I was with really brought the energy of, okay, we get back from volunteering and then we go to another volunteer activity. So a lot of people um, had local connections or they were plugged into different social media and would say, okay, there's this opportunity this afternoon to go to this hospital or to go meet these families or to go do that. So one afternoon when we got back, I just happened to be in the lobby of the hostel hanging out and somebody mentioned, oh, there's a bus. There's some Americans got a few mini buses that's leaving from this intersection tonight to go to uh, kibbutz near Am, which is they tr- uh, converted into an army base to barbecue for soldiers. On the envelope with Gaza, right on the border. Yes, with Gaza. right on the envelope, exactly. And so I said, okay, just like let me know where to show up and if I need to chip in for the bus. And then, you know, <laughs> I reached out to four or five other people because there were some more seats. And we just, showed up at the corner of two streets in Florentine and Tel Aviv and got on these buses and off we went. I mean, it's really, the opportunity is in the air. Like anywhere you look, the need is so great that there's an opportunity. Um, so that for that event, we went down, um, put on a big barbecue. There were probably 20 of us and maybe 100-ish soldiers, male and female, um, and they would go into Gaza for a few days at a time and come back. So like to be able to have a warm, hot meal and just the spirit of solidarity and knowing that there are people who care goes just as far as the food, if not farther, I think. Because as an Israeli, you're defending your homeland. Right. You're defending, literally defending your family or people that you know from having terrorists who want to break through and murder and maim and do terrible things to every Israeli. I mean, if you listen to Khalad Mashal or Yehiyah Sinwar, any of the leaders of Hamas, they're still saying, I mean, in interviews week after week after week, we're going to go in and do October 7th again and again and again. And so they, they know what the stakes are, but they feel like they have to because their family's lives are on the line. But for an American who, it's it's actually funny, it's not funny, but many Israelis who I've spoken to have said they're more worried about us, Jews outside of Israel, given all the anti-Semitism and the global response, than they are about their own safety. Uh, but that's kind of an aside. But for an American Jew who ostensibly is pretty safe and you have a great job, to, to come to Israel and show them that you care you're saying that makes a huge, that makes all the difference to them. I think a lot of, um, you know, I had that, it wasn't just with the soldiers. It would just be even on the street, you know, right after a war breaks out, you don't expect large groups of English speakers. You know, you, you don't have the birthright trip. You don't have the big tourist stuff. So anywhere we went as a group, people were like, hmm, you're not tourists. What are you doing here? You know, and we'd say, oh, we came to volunteer and we're working on this farm and just just here to do whatever we can. And the reaction, I mean, people were confused why we would come during a war and like do Americans or people outside. We had people from Germany and Canada and Mexico, Scotland on our trip. So not to be American centric, people from outside of Israel. 
I think it was even hard for them to conceptualize that we came there after the war started to provide support or whatever was needed. Because like you said, they so closely understand this is us defending, like we have no other land, this is it. And Americans or people outside of Israel don't have that same perception usually. Yeah, I can go back to my Target and my Starbucks and whatever. Um, that surprised me a lot, hmm. a lot. That, you know, it's so funny, some Israelis even said like, sometimes now I've met you guys, I wonder if like, these Jews outside of Israel might support Israel more than we do, you know? Like it never, it, it just didn't cross their minds that when all of this happened and the global reaction, was so slanted and so negative that I think to just remind people in Israel, yeah, we are here for you and we do understand. And whether that's financial support or social media or just showing up or just giving someone a hug, it's so important. I think this war and the terrible atrocities on October 7th has done more for, for worse in a lot of ways, but also for better, it's done more for Jewish peoplehood than um, than anything we could have expected. And certainly than where the trend was going with the growing divide between American Jews and Israeli Jews. But that's, that's for another conversation. Um, w- talk to me because the thing you're most passionate about, your, your cause after October 7th and especially after your trip is the cause of the hostages. So can you talk about what your experience was like interacting with their families and, and just being there all over, even even to this day, there's 136 hostages in Israel remaining. Uh, Thirty over 30 of whom are confirmed dead. So uh, there's about around 100 hostages still living. And, and by the way, we're uh, four or five days since this incredible operation freeing two hostages in their 70s mm-hmm. uh, who were actually in a home in Rafa. This incredibly daring operation in which no Israeli soldiers were killed. These two hostages were freed, uh, but around 100 still remain uh, in deep, dark pits underground in, in Gaza. So the hostage situation is ever present in Israel. Every, you know, you drive by the Microsoft headquarters and they have like a picture of every hostage on the side of the building. It's at bus stops. It's at, it's everywhere. That, you know, when I get questions about when will the war end or what's Israel's point with all of this, et cetera, aside from dismantling a terrorist regime and all of that, I think every single Israeli would say we're, we're missing part of our people. This will end when every single person comes home. Um, for me, the hostages are also really emblematic of the fact that this is not a Jewish issue or an Israeli issue solely. The two hostages who were rescued on Tuesday were Argentinian. Um, there are Nepali hostages. There are Uzbeki hostages. I mean, there are people from na- nations all over the world. And Hamas doesn't discriminate. They they just are coming to take who they can take, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Arab, whether they're Israeli or from anywhere else. Um, so that, for me, has been... You know, I try to remind people of that, that it's, it's not just Israel saying, we want these Jews specifically back. It's no, we people were taken from our country regardless of what religion, race, whatever they are. Um, so yes, it's very, very ever present in the Israeli media, the Israeli ethos right now. And there is 
a hostage, they're calling it Hostage Square, Kikar Hatufim, Hatufim that's set up in Tel Aviv, um, where there are essentially hostage families who are camped out and there's like memorials. You may have seen the really long table with all of the chairs, pictures of that. That's at Hostage Square. The, the table set for yes, people. At, for Shabbat. Showing, yeah. For Shabbat showing these are all the people who are missing from their Shabbat tables. Right, so 100, you know, the numbers change, but over 100 chairs there. Um, and art installations and all kinds of things going on there. I think, you know, I'm not a parent, but it's just so hard to imagine that your kid is having their birthday in captivity, um, you know, whether they're an adult child or a young child or that whole families, like the Bebus family, whole families are there. One-year-old, three-year-old. Yeah, and, and I believe actually they're Argentinian citizens as well, some of them. Um, so it's just, uh, and, and there is an interesting, you know, there's some tension with the hostage families and the government at times where they, they are going up to protest um, at the government buildings or they disagree with certain action or think there should be more action. So it's really, um, I think Israeli society is very sensitive to the hostage families and it's kind of driving a lot of the discussion, a lot of the urgency. Um, and it's something, so I, it just really speaks to me because I can't imagine being at a music festival, enjoying time with my friends or being in my house at 6.30 in the morning making my coffee and then all of a sudden being taken like that. I mean, it's just inconceivable. And it feels like it is obvious, like it, it, it is undeniably, it's not an act of resistance to take hostages and do things like that. It should be undeniably, everyone should agree, all hostages have to be released. It's like an easy yes that I think so many of us should be able to align on inside the Jewish community, outside the Jewish community and globally. Mm. It's, it's such an important point, and I think that when you when you hear um, the hostage families saying, why, there's hostage families who protested aid going into Gaza, and uh, the American government and other global governments have said, you know, you have to have humanitarian aid into Gaza, and I, we don't have to comment about whether that's right or wrong today, other than to say, um, I'll say that I think Palestinian civilians should have access to food and water. Uh, but from the hostage family's perspective, they say we shouldn't give aid into, and this is a sub, I'm not saying every hostage family feels like this, but but uh, part of the hostage family's forum are coming out and saying you sh we should not give aid because our kids, our parents, our siblings are have been in tunnels being raped every single day. Um, without access to medicine, without access to food. They're, they're diabetics, they're people with thyroid disease, and we don't know if they're getting any, any medical care. They, many of them probably haven't seen sunlight in 140 days. Um, and I think it just puts into perspective how the rest of the world, when they talk about a ceasefire, when they talk about the conflict whatsoever, the hostages barely make the news anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet this is front and center in the mind of every single Israeli, and uh, it's it's a moral issue. It's it's when people I totally agree with you when they say, you know, uh, the Hamas is is resisting Israeli occupation or Israeli colonialism, um, kidnapping hundreds of people and taking them out of their homes. If if you think that that is a proper response to 
what Israel is doing, then something is seriously wrong on a moral level. Yeah, and it should just be an easy, you know, it, it says a lot when you see people calling for ceasefire with no mention of hostages. I think um, what's not said speaks a lot louder than mm-hmm. what is said. And it has been tough, you know. I have some extended family members or friends who don't see things the same way or don't really understand the totality of the situation. And it can be tough, but that's why you know I've started, there's a movement called um, Run For Their Lives that was started in the Bay Area. There are over 167 chapters now in cities all over the world coming together to walk in solidarity and keeping focus on the hostages on a weekly basis. It's not a protest. It's not a pro-Jewish or pro-Israel. It is just calling a continued call for the release of every single hostage. Um, so, yeah, finding a way, what what is meaningful to you that you want to engage with. Um, it's been it's been huge for me since I've come back from Israel. Let's talk about who you're engaging with and who you're seeing on social media. You're a millennial, I'm a millennial. Uh, we have our generation and Gen Z even more so has taken a very different perspective than you have taken, than than you have come to. So can you talk a little bit about why you think so many people are critical of Israel and Israel's response? And what do they miss? What do they get wrong about their analysis? I read a statistic recently about people getting, maybe people under 25 getting the majority of their information on the conflict from TikTok, and that there is a massive spike in anti-Semitism that's correlated with it. This was by like some third party objective research group and not being, you know, I guess I'm an elder millennial now, whatever that means. So I'm like, I, I don't have TikTok and I don't see all of this stuff, but I'm thinking, wow, you know, your brains are kind of forming, you're getting your ideas about how the world works. And it's coming from your phone and all of this like unchecked and often very slanted information. Um, and frankly, the oppressor, oppressed narrative and the structure and the framework that we have in the West, I think a lot of people are just trying to apply this to a very nuanced, very complex conflict. And it's trendy to do so. It's like, oh, it's cool that like colonialism and oppression and we'll fight it, you know, against it. But you can't just take these blanket labels you see on social media and apply them to a decades centuries long ongoing sort of figuring out a way to live together amongst people who in some ways are very similar but in some ways are very different um i was actually off social media pretty much before october 7th because you know instagram particularly for me can get a little for me it was the online shopping is really why i got (laughs) not because of anti-semitism or anything like that but um You know, I, in the first bit of time, I was really, uh, I was engaging with people, fighting with people in my DMs, you know, and saying, just so you know, this is, this thing you posted about from the river to the sea is basically calling for all Jews to be killed in Israel. And that's a little anti-Semitic, you know, you should be aware of that. Um, And I talked to some family and friends who were like, this is wearing on you. And, you know, is this really serving a greater purpose or are you just working yourself up and you know maybe there's a different way to use your energy here 
So I've kind of taken a step back. The one thing I will always consistently post about is hostages, because like I said, I think that should be a very agnostic issue. It is very clear that the right thing to do is release them. Um, but it's tough, the whole social media thing. I mean, Israel in some ways is pretty good with social media, but in a lot of other ways, a little out of touch. And and it's really crazy to me now that some, you know, if you want to call it a war, that these wars are being fought by public opinion on social media. It's not about what's really happening on the ground. It's what is coming out in the social media echo chamber and then what people get behind. And it's social media, I think, allows a removal from reality to a certain extent. And this armchair quarterbacking outside of Israel that if you're on the ground there, it's just you see what the, the truth and the reality is. And that's not to say that being critical of the Israeli government is I, I don't think that's anti-Zionist. I don't think it's anti-Semitic. There are plenty of Israelis who are critical of the government and fully support the rescue of the hostages and the dismantling of Hamas. It's just, is that an informed opinion? Is that a reasonable, constructive criticism? Or is it anti-Semitic parroting of what mm. you've heard on social media? I, that's such an important point. I, does it make you anti-American if you like Biden to criticize Trump? Does it make you anti-American if you like Trump to criticize Biden? No, of course not. And there are many, many things about the Israeli government that I have been very critical of. Go back and watch my Yom Kippur sermon or many of the sermons I've given about Israel because I think out of a love for Israel, when you see the government making decisions you think are bad for Israel, then it's our responsibility to speak out. And what Ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir, who's the Minister of National Security in Israel, he's from a party that until a few years ago when Bibi let them back in, were barred from the Knesset. And um, he is, in my opinion, not a good guy and bad for the Jews. And he um, is the head of, he's the boss of the minister of police, of the head of police. And so you have all these settlers. Uh, let me rephrase. You have some very, very small set, small subset of settlers in the West Bank who are perpetrating violence and um, uh, destroying property of Palestinians. Just a couple days ago, we read about uh, these settlers who killed two Palestinians in the West Bank. And uh, the Biden administration has imposed some sanctions on them. They're, now the EU is talking about imposing sanctions on some of these individual settlers who are uh, doing bad things. And for much of this conflict and, and much of Ben Gvir's term as minister, he's totally turned a blind eye to this. He himself lives in a settlement in, I see in REL, somewhere in the West Bank. Uh, no, he lives in Hebron. He lives in Hebron. Well, and he just went to a, whatever this big conference they had was a week or two ago about resettling Gaza. And most Israelis were absolutely appalled. Appalled. Because that is not the goal of any of this for the majority of Israelis. they I mean, it's shocking. And, and not only were they advocating for this, they were dancing and celebrating um, in the middle of the war when people are dying every day to, to protect Israel. And so I think that it is totally uh, our duty, not just okay, but our duty to criticize when people are acting against Jewish values, um, even, if, even if they're Israeli and even if they're in the government. Uh, and 
people should feel that they can do that, and that's not anti-Israeli or anti-Jewish to be able to do that. But the problem is so many people are criticizing Israel from a, from a different perspective and from, not from a place of love. Um, so final question, because you've been so generous with your time, I don't want to take too much of it. This clearly, as, as your family said, is taking a toll on you, or at least um, is putting a lot of stress uh, and uh, causing a lot of pain. So what are you doing at, to help manage that pain and manage that stress? And uh, what meaning are you find in doing so? I feel really grateful and, you know, blessed, I think is a little overplayed these days, <laughs> hashtag blessed, but honestly, like it does feel like a blessing. The people I was with on my trip in Israel, um, I didn't build a huge Jewish community during law school or when I was in St. Louis. And just transitioning back to Memphis, I do have a community here, but sort of like reigniting some of those relationships. So it was a little bit of a an odd spot for me to be in with social support. And then I went on this trip with these folks who are sort of around the same age range as I am and obviously have similar values and desire to help. And they have been so core to me, you know, keeping my head on straight. Like I, I just went to LA for Shabbat last weekend because six of them happened to, you know, two of them live there and a few were flying in for other things. And I was like, I just need to, these are my people. The people you volunteered with. The people with. I volunteered with. Wow. Um, and to just be with people that I was in Israel with who understand how I'm feeling. Um, you know, one of them is from Toronto and she, right after we were in LA, she flew home and sent me a video and she said, the welcoming committee is here. And it was just, thousands of people protesting from the river to the sea in the street right outside of her apartment. And I was like, wow, I'm grateful. You know, I'm not in a place where I feel that under attack. But these people understand. We all understand how each other feel and are there to support one another. So that's been really huge. Um, I try to limit my time on social media to just like a few things in the morning and a few things in the afternoon, like none of it during work hours and trying not to scroll first thing in the morning, whether it's news or social media or whatever, like have a life, exercise a little, do my stuff in the morning. Don't just get right on to the to the doom scroll. Um, and engaging with the community has been huge for me. Like when you, um, Rabbi Jeff, asked me to give a talk here, I was thrilled to be able to sort of share some of the experience. And I think sharing with people who are interested in hearing really does a lot for me. Um, with you know starting the hostage solidarity walk group here in Memphis I've connected with some folks in the orthodox community that I haven't met before um, just spreading trying to spread out my roots and branches at the same time and just bring in as many like-minded people as I can and lean into what's already here like I don't mm. we have an amazing Jewish community in Memphis I don't need to reinvent the wheel like what's already here that I can engage with the service at Crosstown tonight you know young adults who are probably somewhat like-minded great place to meet people speaking here doing the you know whatever I can going to I think there's like a challah bake in a few weeks someone's doing and I was like I'll be there so just leaning into what fills me up which is for me it's like taking care of myself physically health-wise meditating you know mentally getting outside and socially like having the family and having the 
the the tribe, the people, Jewish or not, you know, I some of my closest supporters and allies so are not Jewish, which has been very interesting, but they understand um, where we're coming from. So, well, thank you, Hannah, for all that you're doing, for for sharing your story and your wisdom with all of us, and um, thank you for giving such an amazing example to to all who are listening and to our whole community. In the in the weeks following October seventh, we did a number of of programs and we created space to gather. And I think for all of us who were feeling so uh, wounded, coming together is so powerful. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling like you're going through this and you're struggling and you don't know what to do with, with all of that anxiety and negativity, coming together makes such a difference. And so I would just want to let you know you're welcome here. We're doing so as much as we possibly can in terms of programming, in terms of uh, opportunities to gather and of course in in God's infinite wisdom on the seventh day God rested and every week we have Shabbat as a chance to come together and recharge and uh, power up from that strength of community and so you're all welcome and I hope you'll join us and um, Hannah we're so honored and grateful you're a part of this community and uh, thank you thank you very much and if anyone is interested in learning more about the walks in Memphis, uh, feel free to send me an email at hd as in dog, c-h-a-n-i-n at gmail.com. Or if you just want to talk about Israel and volunteer opportunities, I'm always happy to chat. Wonderful. Well, this is not the last you're going to be hearing of Hannah Channon. Uh, we wish you a wonderful Shabbat, a wonderful week ahead, and we'll see you next time on Tour to the People. Shalom.